well, that huge book of Isaiah gives us actually many of the um, prophecies foretelling God uh, sending his chosen one to earth, uh, his special one, the Messiah, the Christ, and uh, we'll probably hear lots of those readings read over the next 10 days as we move to and on on to Christmas Day. If you go back in Isaiah, you get, like in chapter 7, the information that it will be a virgin who will conceive. If you go into chapter 9, it's going to be a child born to bring light into darkness. If you go to chapter 35, you have a description of how Jesus will be when he's older. He will open the eyes of the blind, the lame will leap, he'll save us, and we will be overcome with joy and gladness. But when those uh, prophecies were given back in that day, I don't think that really hardly anybody had any understanding of what they would mean. You see, God's people were going through really, really um, low times. Um, You could say that they were falling apart as a nation. These were messages of hope, but if you read those first 39 chapters of Isaiah, you get actually far more warnings than you do these hopeful messages. Um, because they had turned away from God's ways. They were no longer following what God had asked them to do. And they were looking to political situations to solve all their problems. As I've looked back this week, I have to say that with the general election, all that's been said, I could not help but make um, comparisons between our times and the people uh, of God back then. But the prophet was convinced and kept saying it over and over and over again that it was only an unshakable trust in Yahweh, their one and only God, our God Almighty, that could protect Judah and Jerusalem from the advances of the enemies. And again, that's a great message, isn't it, for this week, uh, for the months to come, and for the years to come. And then we come to uh, chapter 40, and the prophet, and I know there's always a discussion about whether it's one Isaiah or two Isaiahs, and this morning I'm not going there, I'm just going with the message. Um, But the prophet, by now, has found himself carted off into exile, into Babylon. And, and that's where he is. So it really was a terribly low point. They were not even in the country that God had given them. And uh, if you look at some of the Psalms, and especially Psalm 137, I know you will know it, how it begins. Beside the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept and thought of Jerusalem. Those of you who are 
as old as I am, will remember the hit single in 1978 with Boney M that took those words and uh, it, they became ingrained in the memory. But chapter 40 um, begins with just lovely, lovely words of a heavenly father to his children. Now, I don't know if we've got sound on and whether this is going to work, but I'll try. sure you recognize it those lovely tender words the first word sung in Handel's great oratorio the Messiah times were difficult um, but God goes on to tell them that not only would they be rescued from their situation and indeed they were 70 years later but he makes a long-term promise to them, and that is of the coming of Jesus. And uh, that's why this morning's title isn't based back in Isaiah, but it is the Songs of Christmas. One commentator says that reading Isaiah 40 and the opening verses is like the overture to uh, a great musical composition and it contains many themes that are opened up in the following chapters of Isaiah like the glory of the Lord and the tenderness of the Saviour that is to come and the way of the Lord that we are to follow. We've uh, lit three candles this morning, they're all going nicely and it is the third Sunday of Advent. And from the Roman Catholic tradition, and it's in the Anglican Communion and many Protestant churches, this is known as Gaudete Sunday. A little bit of Latin there. Gaudete. It means rejoice. What a great thing to do. Carol's by candlelight tonight. Rejoice. Absolutely. Let's get with it. I started rejoicing in that sort of way, I have to say, last weekend because um, friends took us to hear Handel's Messiah at uh, Wells Cathedral. It was glorious and of course it began with those words from Isaiah 40. And uh, let's put those... Okay, there we are. We've got the verses up there. Um, I was just interested in passing to discover that the year that the Messiah was written, 1741, was also a general election year. Most of us would not have been allowed to vote back in those days. We probably didn't have enough land or money uh, to be able to do that. But it was a general election year. Handel um, was a man of uh, great faith. And when he was presented by the writer a man called Jennings, with these 81 Bible verses, 
um, he set about writing the music to go with the, the texts. So there's a major part which is from the prophecies and goes to the birth of Jesus. And then two more parts about crucifixion and resurrection and the promise of eternal life to all believers. The fascinating thing is that the whole of that writing of the music, I'm sorry that Mig's not here so I can impress him with this, but the whole of the writing of the music took just over three weeks. Can you imagine? The whole of the Messiah. And later, um, Handel spoke about being convinced that he received divine inspiration and assistance. And the fact that nearly 300 years uh, later, it's still moving us as we go to listen to that work, I I think bears testimony to that. I've got my copy of uh, the music of the Messiah here. Don't know if it looks familiar to some of you. You'll have it around. This this was a gift to me from a man called Mr. Jaquest. Mr. Jaquest taught me to play the church organ. And uh, the reason that he did that when I was in my uh, teens was that he himself was becoming increasingly blind. And so he could play the hymns that he could remember for services in church. But when it came to the choir singing, he he couldn't read new music uh, or even remember some of um, the more complicated music. So he drew me in, taught me to play the organ, which was a very interesting experience from a nearly blind person, because you have to do a lot of it uh, by feel rather than uh, by sight. And uh, the first big um, choir pieces that I did, I had to play from the Messiah. It was terrifying, I can tell you. Um, And later on, I was given this lovely copy that belonged to Mr. DeQuest. And there's a whole lot of scribblings in it. The first recorded time in here that it was used was in 1946, the year after the end of the the Second World War. And it was used to sing from in the Royal Albert Hall. And it was for a BBC recording that was going to go out at Christmas that year. And there's a whole lot of other dates that uh, go over the years, and, and I've used it many times as well. In verse 4 of Isaiah 40, we read some verses that also pop up in the oratorio. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And it was these words that John the Baptist, who came, um, claimed that they referred to him. And we get the wonderful phrase, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. There we go. And that comes from Isaiah 40, and it was uh, what John the Baptist was doing out there in the desert. It was revealed the glory of the Lord was revealed in Jesus here in earth, here on earth both in his humanity and in his divinity and we are people who are still learning how to live in that glory of the Lord 
Our uh, Advent series this year in life groups is being called because of Bethlehem. And we've been encouraged to think about uh, how we're preparing for Christmas this year. How are we handling the busyness that most of us find ourselves in? How are we coping with the pressure that's put on because of those adverts in magazines and on the television and so on? And the thing that bugs me so much, those films that we see on television or the pictures in magazines of perfectly decorated houses and perfectly laid out Christmas tables with everything looking perfect and delicious. But when we invite the glory of God into our preparations, it's not, is it, as I think somebody's mentioned already, to have perfection It's not to have perfection. It's not that we will shine in what we're doing or that we will put on a show, but it's just that we will show the love of God through anything that we do at this time of year with our friends and families. Moving on to that next little group of uh, verses. And... Verse 9 says, You who bring good news to Zion, go up on the high mountain. Lift up your voice with a shout. Don't be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, Here is your God. You know, this was good news. It was good news that God would be coming. But it took hundreds, hundreds of years before it was actually fulfilled. And if we move forward those hundreds of years to get to the time of the birth of Jesus, God's people weren't in a very good place again then. Um, They had become uh, religious in the very negative sense of the word. Um, their, Their Jewishness had become... Uh, set up on uh, over 600 laws that they had to keep. And it had become uh, a faith, not a faith in God, but based on uh, uh, laws that had to be kept and rules and regulations. Furthermore, the Romans, who spread out so far round the uh, Mediterranean, they had conquered um, God's uh, people as well. They were living there. And uh, so God's people were feeling uh, unfairly taxed by the Romans and some of their own people were collecting those taxes and were cheating on them. They felt oppressed by not being able to do what they wanted in their own place. Then add to that the really despotic leader that the Romans had put in place, King Herod. And you can see that it really wasn't a very good time again. But it was into that situation that we actually got the fulfilment of Isaiah 40, verse 9, the good news to Jerusalem, someone to say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. 
the sovereign Lord. And if you read again the early chapters of uh, Luke, the Gospel of Luke, he does make it clear that this announcer, referred to by Isaiah, was indeed John the Baptist, who would go out ahead telling people that God's promised one, the Messiah, the Christ, was about to come. And that uh, John the Baptist was the same John that we read about in the Nativity narration, the narrative. Last Sunday, we enjoyed the walkabout Nativity. It was fabulous, wasn't it? Well done to everybody concerned. And the rain held off, praise God. So it really was very, very special. During this week, our Open the Book team and other members from our J24 Life Group have have been involved in two more uh, nativities. And uh, on Wednesday morning, we were in our local school and acting out the nativity story with 460 children in their uh, full school assembly in front of us. And on Thursday evening, we were back um, leading the community Christmas evening in the same place, but inviting members of the community to come in. And we really appreciated Matt and Becky and the children coming and being part of that. That was, that was great. But every time we tell the nativity story like that, we actually know, don't we, that it's the condensed version. It's, uh, it's one part, it's a lot of big time frames squashed into one, and it doesn't actually begin at the beginning. Because if you read in Luke's Gospel, it goes back, it starts 15 months before Jesus was born. And it starts with a man called Zechariah. Um, He was a godly man, we're told, and he was a priest, and he was taking his turn in the temple in Jerusalem, and it was his day to go into the Holy of Holies. It's, It's a really rare privilege for priests. And the angel Gabriel came to him to say that his elderly wife, Elizabeth, would become pregnant by him and the instruction was that their baby must be called John. Now all this was amazing for two reasons. Um, Elizabeth, also a godly woman, uh, was very old, way past the expected childbearing years. But the other reason it was so amazing was that God had not communicated with his people in any way for 400 years at this time. This was amazing. Move on six months and the angel Gabriel was busy again, this time going to Mary and giving her the amazing news that with no man to be involved this time, uh, there would be a virgin birth. And she would give birth to God's son, who would reign forever, and he must be named Jesus, or Yeshua in Hebrew, meaning deliverer or rescuer. 
Now, Mary and Elizabeth, these two women, were cousins. And Mary, and we can imagine how she must have felt with this news and then realising she was pregnant, she went to Elizabeth um, for support. Um, There was Mary out of wedlock and in this condition, and it must have been a really, really hard thing back in those days. So from these two amazing events, even before we ever get to Christmas Day, we actually have two more wonderful songs of Christmas as the pregnant Mary comes into Elizabeth's home. Elizabeth recounts that the baby jumped for joy within her. Now, we we know as mums about babies kicking and uh, um, making their presence felt before they're born, that this was something over and above that. It was a spiritual thing. It was of cosmic significance because Elizabeth recognised that Mary was going to be the mother of God incarnate, God come to earth. And Mary responds with what has become known as the Magnificat, that beautiful poem or song that starts, how I praise the Lord, how I rejoice in God my Saviour. And it is the most beautiful and a prophetic song. And it tells us that God's mercy and goodness to his followers will go on and on from generation to generation. It will go to us. It's good news for us. And it's good news for us to share with other people. Just three months later, uh, Elizabeth's baby was born. Uh, Zechariah had been struck dumb because when the angel Gabriel gave him this news, he struggled to believe it. And uh, so he was kept silent for all the time of Elizabeth's pregnancy. But when the baby was born and he was asked to write down, because he couldn't speak, what the name of the baby would be, and he wrote John... Not a family name, an unexpected name, but he wrote John as instructed, and his voice came back. He was able to speak again. And Luke writes, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and gave this prophecy. Praise the Lord, because he has visited his people and redeemed them. He has sent us a mighty saviour. And he went on to address his own newborn baby and said, you will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way of the Lord. Another beautiful song of Christmas. And the third song was on the night when Jesus was born and it was sung by the angels. Probably that's the least surprising of all the songs around Christmas time because you would think, wouldn't you, that the angels had been practicing in heaven not just for the five weeks or four weeks or something that tonight's choir had been practicing for, but they would have been practicing in heaven almost forever uh, for this occasion when Jesus was going to come to earth. And they sang 
Glory to God in heavenly heights. Peace to all men and women who please him. That's from the message. You get it that way. And the most surprising thing was perhaps who they sang it to. Because they went out onto the hills outside Bethlehem to where the shepherds were looking after their sheep on the hillside, pretty smelly and rough people. And that's who the angels came to, to bring the good news. They were people who knew about caring for their flocks, about protecting weak lambs, about searching for lost sheep. And these were the people that God chose to bless particularly to announce the birth of Jesus. And again, in our Advent studies in life groups, we've been thinking about how we are blessing people with the good news of Jesus this Christmas. And we need to keep asking ourselves, don't we, as we go through the busyness of the season, how are we speaking that good news in some way to our friends and our neighbours, people that we might be inviting here tonight, even people we might be inviting to Alpha in the new year. And so we come on to the last few verses of the chapter, the ones that were read out by Tony. And there are other themes picked up about um, Christmas because God chose to come to earth as a human being, the baby, Jesus, who would grow up. And he would have all the human experiences that we have, the highs and the lows. He would take notice of the lowly, and he would feed the hungry, as Mary put it in her song. He would redeem and save his people, as Zechariah put it. And in the words of Isaiah, he would be a gentle shepherd to the flock. He would strengthen the weary. He would understand our deepest anxieties. And as we put our hope in Jesus, he will renew us as if on the wings of eagles. And these are some of the messages that come to us from the songs of Christmas. And they are certainties from God's word. We can trust them. Isaiah's message was to a people who felt shattered. Their world had been torn apart. And yet God's word of the Saviour coming is still for those who feel their lives have been shattered, the homeless, the hungry, the refugees, the marginalised. It's for those of us who feel we're struggling for some reason, unwell perhaps, finding work hard at the moment, too much to do, afraid of something that's coming up, distressed, overtired, perhaps even anxious about how Christmas is going to work out with this part of the family or that. And Isaiah's message of comfort comfort you my people comes to us again it, it was no cheap comfort 
That, that would be cruel, wouldn't it? But it is a comfort based on truth at every point, and it's confirmed by the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus that we're just going to remember as we take communion. So this comfort is truly good news for me, for you, for everyone that we know. And uh, we can sing all the songs of Christmas uh, confidently to the glory of God. Amen.